Gospel of Mark. Man, if that was the first time y'all sang that song, I'm excited for uh, the second time to sing that song. Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. Mark chapter 11, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, slip up your hand. We've got lots of Bibles in the back, and we've got church members walking down the aisles now with those. If you would like a hard copy to look off of, if not, uh, all the passages I read should be on the screen this morning. But if you're like me, you'd like a hard copy to look at and linger over a passage, rather than quickly move on with the slides. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, is where we'll begin to read here in just a moment. So Mark chapter 11 is a big transition moment in the gospel narrative. Last week, Stephen Picard led us through the conclusion of what we've been calling the big sandwich in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. Remember, Mark uses this literary technique where he tells one story, uh, and then he tells a similar story on the other side of multiple stories in the middle. So, So the sandwich of teaching began... In Mark chapter 8, with the healing of a blind man. And it ended, at the end of Mark chapter 10, with the healing of another blind blind man. But in the middle, the stories and teachings showed that there was more than just physical blindness plaguing the world. There was a spiritual blindness plaguing the world. The teachings between the two healings of the blind men showed that even Jesus' disciples, who were face-to-face with Jesus and hearing Jesus' very clear teachings, were themselves blind to those teachings. The, the stories told us that, that it doesn't matter how close you are to Jesus, how clearly he's articulating it to you, that your nature leads you into a direction to not believe what he's saying rather than to believe what he's saying. So in that sandwich of material from Mark chapter 8 through the end of Mark chapter 10, we found three times where Jesus very clearly outlines his intentions as the Messiah and Savior of the world. And we find three times where the disciples very clearly misunderstood and ignored those Intentions. So as a refresher before we get to our passage, let me just read those three predictions from from Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. So Mark chapter 8, verse 31, this is what Jesus tells them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. After that prediction, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, saying that death could not be a part of the plan. Mark chapter 9, verse 31, again. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. After that prediction... His disciples are caught along the way, arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They still believe that to be a part of this kingdom is going to be honor and greatness in this life. And Jesus corrects them. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus again saying, see, 
we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And Jesus gets very specific here in the prediction. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Again, the disciples ignore this and begin to discuss which one is going to sit in the seat of honor in the kingdom of God to come. Now in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it begins like this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. So let me pause there before we read our entire passage. They are now drawing near to the city. The city where the temple of the Lord was. The city where the people of God pilgrimed to, to worship the one true God, to bring sacrifices, to be near his presence. The city where Israel's kings of old were enthroned. The city where Jesus says he is going to face his death. And Mark chapters 11 through chapters 13 that we're about to to move into as a church tell us the events and the teachings of Jesus in just his first three days in Jerusalem. The amount of material provided increases in your scriptures with each passing day. So the first two days are covered just in the first 26 verses of chapter 11. The third day spans from verse 27 all the way to chapter 13. The narrative, the way Mark wrote the gospel, is that the narrative slows down as the most important moment in history approaches. Now, I want you to see this. So in the previous 10 chapters, we've seen highlights from a three-year span. So 10 chapters, three years. Chapters 11 through 13 will just cover three days. Chapters 14 and 15 will just cover one 24-hour period of time. Jesus' betrayal denial, arrest, crucifixion, and burial. So put this in perspective for you. The remainder of the gospel of Mark, of our study of Mark, is only going to cover a one-week period of time. But we will not get done with our study of the gospel of Mark till (laughs) mid-September. So so it's clear that, that by way of Mark's arrangement of the material, that everything about this story leads to the cross. The whole story of Mark's gospel, and in reality, the whole story of the world, is building to one climactic moment where Jesus will be crucified in the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 11, Jesus draws near to that city. So let's read verses 1 through 11. And then let's pray uh, that God would give us understanding of this morning's text. Now when they, draw near to, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. 
untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and let them go. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at it, every, looked around at everything as it were already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, let's, let's pray. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, we come to you and we ask uh, that you would open our eyes to see the things that you would like to teach us about Jesus from this morning's scripture. And we pray at the end of this sermon that every one of us would be able to exalt Jesus in a clearer, more faithful way than when we walked in. So God, we pray, just stir our affections, stir our worship, help us to behold our King. And we pray this by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Before entering in the city, Jesus pauses outside the city gates and he makes some very intentional moves. Though Mark's narrative has never shown Jesus to do anything but walk, Jesus has always walked with his followers from place to place. In this moment, Jesus stops the crowd of followers and he decides to send two disciples into the city to borrow an animal on which Jesus would make his entry into the city of God, into Jerusalem. And what we are meant to notice the details in verses 1 through 6. I mean, you have six verses dedicated to the instruction and the retrieval of a donkey. Jesus gives incredibly specific instructions, and everything is exactly... As Jesus instructs, he sends two disciples to a specific village. He knows where the colt will be. He knows that no one has ever sat on that donkey, <laughs> which, parentheses, side note, important detail, it was, it was commonly known that any true king would never ride on an animal that was ridden on by someone else. Kings always rode on animals that were reserved for them only. It's a slight clue tucked away that the kind of entry into Jerusalem that Jesus was about to proceed through was a royal one. This is the arrival of a king. So Jesus knows where the donkey is going to be, that it, where is it's going to be tied up, the fact that it's never been ridden on. He, he knows that someone's going to question them. He tells them exactly what to say so that the questioning person will let them go. The whole thing 
every tiny little detail, spent six verses spent on this donkey retrieval, is meant to remind you on the outset before Jesus even enters into the city. It's meant to show you the unparalleled royal sovereignty of Jesus over every detail that's about to transpire. If you're a note taker this morning, this is what the first thing I want you to notice about this text, truth number one. King Jesus has all authority over every detail. The events that follow in the city of Jerusalem over the next week, they will appear on the surface like a disaster. They will appear to those wanting the kingdom to come. They will appear like the kingdom is slipping through their hands. In the following passage that we'll study next week, Jesus appears to lose his cool in the temple, effectively signing a death certificate with the most powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be betrayed and denied and arrested and mocked and humiliated and crucified, and the enemy over the next week is going to appear to be more powerful than him. The suffering he will endure will appear to be more excruciating than he can bear. But in it and through it, there will be no unforeseen detail. No moment that was out of bounds of the sovereign rule and control of King Jesus. There's no detail in what follows that was a rogue event operating outside the scope of Jesus' control. Jesus foresees and ordains seemingly small details of a donkey tied up in a village, and he foresees and ordains everything that is about to happen to him. But the donkey in the village turns out to be not quite as small of an act of sovereignty as you might first think. Yes, Jesus knows just where the donkey will be, just how the disciples will retrieve it, But Jesus also knows prophecies written about him hundreds and hundreds of years before his arrival. Jesus knows his Bible, as do many of his followers. Jesus will enter into the city of God, into the city of Jerusalem, on the back of a donkey for a very specific reason. Because hundreds of years prior, Zechariah grieved by the kingdom of man, as many of us are, exhausted from the brokenness of the world and the war and the sickness and the sin and the corrupt kings and the the collapsing kingdoms, Zechariah wrote a prophecy that one day man's kingdom would be swallowed up by God's kingdom. And a king would come, and this is what Zechariah wrote in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle, ba- the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I've bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, people of God, against your sons, O Greece, not people of God, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over him, over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in whirlwinds of the south. The Lord will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched with the corners of the altar. In other words, the enemies will be covered in blood. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown... They shall shine on his land, for how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Jesus has chosen a donkey for a very specific reason. He shows his control over all things, Not just in the small predictions of where the donkey would be tied up, but he shows his control over the whole history of the world by fulfilling old promises and a collection of Old Testament writings written by a variety of prophets over hundreds of years ago. The New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament alone is a picture of God's control over every detail throughout the history of the world, climaxing in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is not surprised by what's going to happen. He's fulfilling an eternity-old plan. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you just need to pause at this point in the text and just be reminded of that very simple truth, that Jesus is in control of all things. Your story in this room is a very small part And a very big story that God is weaving together from Genesis to Revelation. But even the smallest parts of your story are not insignificant or uncontrolled. Jesus is in control. And the whole world, including your life, is moving toward his ends. Even when it appears on the surface like evil is winning. The moment of the cross for any outside perspective, looks like Jesus is losing. And in the moment of man's greatest attempt to overthrow the plan of God, they unintentionally fulfill the plan of God. (laughs) Christian, you, you live where you live for a reason. You work the job you work for a reason. You're married to whom you're married for a reason. You're enduring the suffering you're enduring. For a reason. There's no detail of which King Jesus does not wield total and complete authority as King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords over the cosmos. The, the whole picture of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is that there's nothing out of bounds for the authority of Christ. Not natural disasters, not diseases, not demons, not sins. <laughs> he wields authority to forgive sins. He wields authority to interpret, define, determine truth. He has the authority to lay down his own life as he pleases and then take it up again. The picture of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is that he is king. There is no detail or circumstance surrounding your life over which Jesus just wishes he could exert more control. He's not in heaven just wishing he could change your relationship status. He's not there wishing that he could give you that gift you want, that opportunity you want, that job you want. He's not lamenting that he doesn't have the authority to make the calls you wish he could make right now. King Jesus has authority over every detail. He did then in this moment, and he does now in this moment. Colossians 1, verse 16, by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Mark chapter 11, his followers recognize the bigness of of the moment. They recognize that Jesus was not just a good teacher or a cool miracle worker. They recognize that if Jesus was anything at all, he was Lord of all. So his followers begin to get with the program as Jesus enters the city. They begin to give him a king's entrance. They remove their own cloaks, they bring leaves and palm branches, and they spread it out over the road before him. Essentially, this is the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet for the prominent one. Followers of Jesus are going before him and falling behind him, shouting his praises and heralding his royalty. Now, there's a bit of irony here, and I think that I was corrected as I studied this text. This isn't in my notes, this is just kind of a free... Um, one thing that I was corrected by, I've always envisioned the triumphal entry where the people in the city of Jerusalem are like awaiting his arrival and they sort of like celebrate like Jesus is here. But when you really look at the details of the text, it's not the people in Jerusalem that are welcoming him into the city of God. These are his sort of ragtag group of followers. This is the, the people that have been with him going in front of him, coming behind him. Because when Jesus actually gets to the temple, there's no welcome at all. It's actually sort of like anticlimactic. Like he gets in the temple and like nothing's going on. It's late and he kind of looks around and then he goes home. He's not welcomed by the religious people who are there as anything significant at all. And that will become important next Sunday. But for his followers, their shouts and their joy reveal what they hope and what they pray would happen next. So look with me at Mark 11 verse 7. It says, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom. The kingdom Zechariah was hoping for. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, 
Hosanna in the highest. They, they sing a song from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a corporate song of praise for the triumph of a king. The song tells the story of Israel being surrounded by her enemies, but the power of God, the true king, leading them into victory and joy. The word Hosanna is just a Hebrew uh, transliteration in your Bible. It literally just means, save us, we pray. That's what they're singing as Jesus enters the city. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This psalm, Psalm 118, would have been saying traditionally at the end of the Passover feast. They've just celebrated the great salvation of God where they delivered, God delivered the people out of slavery by the blood of the Lamb, and they sing Psalm 118 as they look forward to the fullness of God's salvation when his king comes one day. So they're singing Psalm 118 saying, here he is, the king who came to usher in the kingdom of God and do away with this terrible kingdom of man. He's come to save us, and they were right. But they thought that in this coming of Jesus, Jesus would wield his unmatched authority by achieving a military victory. I mean, his, his, his followers here are saying the right words. They're pointing to the right scriptures. They're singing the right things. Jesus has come to save. But remember, until this point, they've ignored how Jesus came to save. They still think their biggest enemy is Rome. They still think that Jesus' plan was a war on their earthly enemy. They did not get the paradoxical way in which Jesus was going to defeat his enemies. They didn't understand the unexpected way in which Jesus was going to make their salvation possible. It is true that Jesus had absolute authority as the one true king. And it's true that when we know of kings that wield absolute authority, when, when we think of worldly kings that attain power and influence and authority, it's, it's a frightening thing, actually. We understand authority to be a frightening thing because we know authority and we know the sinfulness of man. We know how sinful men wield what little authority they have when they can attain it. They use it to oppress they use it to exploit. They use it to lift themselves up and to beat down others into submission. But notice what Jesus is choosing to do with his authority. Being the royal creator of the universe, he wields his authority by humbling himself to humanity. And now his symbolic royal entry into Jerusalem is on a donkey. I mean, he chooses not to enter into Jerusalem on a war horse or a golden chariot lined with rubies, preceded by soldiers in the front and the back and trumpets. No, no, no. Jesus chooses to enter as a poor man on a borrowed donkey. Preceding him are impoverished fishermen and tax collectors in the front and the back 
singing songs of praise they don't even fully understand. Truth number two this morning is this. King Jesus uses his authority to sacrifice himself in humility. The entrance of a humble king on a donkey should remind us of teaching that Jesus had just given his disciples in the chapter before. Remember this teaching in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. This is what Jesus says. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This moment points to two realities, right? His royalty, his authority, but also his humility. Jesus' enthronement as the king over the kingdom of God was not going to be like what the rest of the world expected. His pathway to exaltation was going to be a pathway of humiliation. His power for salvation was going to be his own crucifixion. He was going to defeat man's greatest enemy, which is death itself, by taking death on himself. He was going to save by not saving himself. Now, now we're going to study the crucifixion in detail in the coming months, months but I, I wanted you to see the theme throughout and so I just want to pause here, and I want to read a chunk of the narrative where Jesus is actually crucified. This, the moment of crucifixion in the Gospel of Mark is described as Jesus' enthronement ceremony. It's described as the moment where Jesus steps into the fullness of his royalty. So I want to read this, and I just want you to listen to the way Jesus chose to wield his authority and power on your behalf. This is what the king of the universe does. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led him away. Inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry 
his cross, and they, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Remember what James and John requested? Lord, can we sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those who recognized the prophecy of Zechariah 9 being fulfilled in Jesus' humble ride on a donkey, they did not recognize that the salvation Jesus was bringing would be through the blood of this king. Zechariah chapter 9, there's a line in verse 11 that I think had been misinterpreted for hundreds of years. As it speaks about Jesus speaking peace to the nations and his rule being from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth, verse 11 says this, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. The kingdom was coming through the blood, not of a lamb, not of a bull, not of a goat, but through the blood of the king himself in the place of his subjects. Jesus' followers were saying the right words, pointing to the right passages, seeing the prophecies, but they were singing the right songs while misinterpreting the mission of this king. He does have all authority over every detail, but he used that authority to sacrifice himself in humility. So what, what are we to do um, with this concept that's going to be reiterated over and over again, but with this passage of Jesus' triumphant, triumphant entry, even the language is paradoxical. What do we do with this Jesus who wielded authority in this way? Uh, allow me to conclude this morning, and I'm going to have sort of four ways, four takeaways that I think that we should be striving for as a congregation in response to King Jesus riding on a donkey to his crucifixion. And takeaway number one is this. Exalt Jesus as king. Let 
listen to me, church. This is, what I, this is one of the things I think God aims to do in the hearts of our church members. I pray that he does in the hearts of our church members. The kingdom imagery, although it seems strange to us because we don't use it in our world, the kingdom imagery, the royal language is not there in your Bibles for poetic flavor. It's not in your Bibles for your entertainment. It's, it is not outdated, antiquated language that we are supposed to look past and get to the more relevant topics for our life. And perhaps contrary to your cultural influences, the universe does not operate like a democracy. You cannot get together because you desire something to be true and vote to change God's law. You cannot get together and decide to change the truth in this universe. It's not a democracy and you are not equal with the leader. The leader of the universe, the constitutional government of the universe, is a monarchy. It's a kingdom with one king. One king who is not your co-pilot. He's not your Santa in the sky who gives you things that you want if you've been good this year. He's not a good luck charm that you hang on your neck. He's not like the pagan gods of the world that just want to be appeased by your occasional church attendance or your confession to a priest. That's not who Jesus is. The Bible paints him as king of kings and lord of lords. And throughout the gospel we've seen that eternal life is not given to those who are good enough. Eternal life is given to those who follow Christ as king. Do you exalt Jesus as king over your life? I'm not asking if you believed in a historical person who did some stuff. I'm asking, do you, is Jesus ruler over what you believe to be true? Or does he tag along in your life? Or do you believe him to tag along in your life while you go on ruling your life and sitting on the throne? In what ways, church, in what ways are you even now this week rebelling against the rule and reign of King Jesus and not trusting his wisdom? We're meant to be humbled by this Jesus. Takeaway number one, exalt Jesus as king. It's, it's the only way to eternal life. Takeaway number two, rest in Jesus' rule. He's not a bad king. <laughs> He's not an oppressive king. He's not a tyrant. He doesn't. He doesn't inspire scripture or write rules to suck the fun from you or your loved ones. His rules are good. They, Psalm 1, 1 says, says, don't walk in the way of scoffers or in the counselors of the wicked. But your delight is in the law of God that you meditate day and night. It's where you find where you can be planted like a tree near streams of water. Do not believe. The lies of our culture that say that Christ's commands are hateful. 
He's a, he's a good king. He, he has authority over all details. And, and he proved to you his goodness when he wielded his, his unmatched authority to become gentle and lowly. To walk among us and to suffer for us. He took authority and he wielded it to sacrifice himself for your salvation. He's a good king. You don't have to live in constant anxiety. You don't have to live in worry. You don't have to live in stress. You, don't, you do not have all authority over all the details of your life. You can't control how long you're going to live or what your life's going to be like. You can't control about whether you get sick or not. Lord, help me. My house has been sick for 80 days, it feels like. <laughs> but you have a good king. Who's prepared an eternal kingdom for you. We Christians never have a reason to panic. Because we know there's never a moment of panic in heaven. You feel like a big bundle of stress this morning. I encourage you to lay it before a king who both rules over you and who gave himself for you. That's a beautiful combination. Ultimate authority that is wielded for your ultimate good, even when you don't understand it. Rest in the rule of Jesus. Takeaway number three, see entitlement through the lens of crucifixion. Jesus, in every way, deserved a better mode of transportation. (laughs) (laughs) he in every way deserved the best treatment from all people he in every way deserved the best living accommodations in every way he deserved to be exalted and welcomed into the temple the temple that was built to symbolize his arrival he's the fullness of god tabernacled among us he's the royal king the perfect high priest the perfect sacrifice the perfect temple that houses the presence of god he's the fulfillment of all the prophecies and he's the best prophet yet he rode a borrowed donkey into a city and into a temple that would reject him he was entitled to all things and philippians 2 tells us he emptied himself What do you feel entitled to this morning? Hmm? What do you do when you feel like something should be true when it's not? What do you do when you do not get what you think you're entitled to? At your workplace or in your marriage or in interpersonal relationships with Other people in this church, do people see Jesus in you by the way you lay aside what you think you're entitled to, or do they see something else entirely? Do people see Jesus in how you treat your spouse, and how you talk at work, and how you handle relationships with others' sin against you, whether intentionally or unintentionally? Do do they see someone frustrated for not getting what is their due, or do they see someone thankful for Jesus who took on himself what he didn't deserve so that we wouldn't have to? All of us struggle with entitlement. We think we deserve the best modes of transportation. All the while, we praise a Jesus who rode a donkey. Don't even get me started on 
several years ago, Jesse DePlanis released a video about why he needs a $53 million jet. And in the video, he said these words. He said, if Jesus were alive today, he would not be riding on a donkey. That was his argument. You know what the problem with that is? Jesus came and chose to ride a donkey. <laughs> right? <laughs> There were other modes of transportation. <laughs> he, he laid aside his entitlement for the salvation of others. He did not add to it. See your entitlement through the lens of a cross. Takeaway number four, last one. <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> Takeaway number four, look to Jesus's second coming. Now, it may seem like a strange takeaway because nothing in this passage seems to be talking about Jesus's second coming. But actually, a lot about this passage points us to the second coming because th this is where some of the confusion lied with Jesus's disciples. They wanted Jesus to come in power and strength to slay the rebellious and overthrow all the godless nations and fully and finally bring the whole world order under the rule of King Jesus. Now, here's the problem with that. If Jesus would have come and done that the first time, no one would have been left standing. No one. They would have been counted as one of the enemies. Jesus came the first time to make a way for rebels against the kingdom to transfer their citizenship. Jesus came the first time to make a way of salvation, to make a way of escape, to make a way to join the kingdom of God rather than to be destroyed by it when it comes. They wanted Jesus to ride in on a war horse. But they didn't know what they wanted. Jesus' first coming, in Jesus' first coming, he comes in on a donkey, humble and self-sacrificial. His first coming makes a way of salvation possible for any who would turn to believe in him. But over the next chapters, Jesus will clarify over and over again that there's another coming. The second coming will be very different than the first. At the first coming, Jesus takes all the justice of God on himself for those who will believe in him. At the second coming, Jesus will distribute the justice of God on any and every who refuse to believe. So right now we live in a broken world where enemies surround us, but there's coming a day where Jesus' kingdom will overthrow all other kingdoms. We live in a unique moment in human history right now where you have the opportunity to transfer your citizenship from a kingdom that is falling to a kingdom that will never fall. You have opportunity to transfer your citizenship by trusting and believing in the king. Be encouraged, Christians, and be warned, non-Christians. The way in which Jesus will enter next time will look very different. It will not be on a donkey. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is known, the way in, the name in which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Exalt Jesus as King this morning. Rest in Jesus' rule. See your entitlement through the lens of crucifixion and look to Jesus' second coming. It should encourage you or it should frighten you. Which does it do? Let's pray. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song.